You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 105. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am once again not alone today. I've got my faithful co-pilot here, Alicia backman Harry. How are you doing, Alicia? I'm well, Mark, and I'm ready to tackle reasons that LMIAs get refused. And this is this is a big one. This happens actually probably fairly frequently. And it's one of the reasons that I get calls from employers or employees whose employers were refused their LMIAs. Indeed. And so what we've done is there's probably a thousand different reasons you get it refused, not filling out the forms properly, not signing them. Those are the ones that the government tells you are the problems, you know, uh, not having um, just basic eligibility requirements met, but what we're focusing on today is our top four real reasons why they get rejected. And uh, without further ado, Alicia, let's just jump right into this. And just for those listeners who are tuning in maybe for the first time, this is in our series of business immigration podcasts. And we're navigating our way through the temporary foreign worker program right now. We will be shifting on to the international mobility program shortly. But this is everything Alicia and I have learned over the last collective almost whatever, 37 to 40 <laughs> years of practice. I love when businesses say that, right? They like hire a bunch of people that all have two years of experience and they say, we have 500 years of experience in this area. Well, the two of us, yeah, we're, we're, we're closing in on 40, which is kind of scary. But hey, when you're 50 years old, like I am, I won't ask you what your age is, Alicia. But 50 years old, I can't figure out how the world, you know, passed me by. And now I'm sitting here. I'm old. Anyways. My grandpa always said age is a state of mind. We're not old. We're just experienced. That is exactly right. So let's jump in and share some of the experience. All right. Dun, 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 dun. Refusal number one. Let's hear it, Alicia. Mm -hmm. So refusal number one, insufficient advertising or recruiting. And this is a big one. And many companies don't carefully read or implement the fine print on what the recruiting program requirements are. And so it's not just advertising, it's also recruiting. And the advertising itself can be an issue. So advertising again goes back and if you haven't listened to our earlier podcast in terms of episode 104, what's what do you do when you need to submit an LMIA and what are the key areas that you need to focus on? One of the key areas is figuring out whether you're in a high wage LMIA world or a low wage LMIA world, or if you might fit within one of the special exemptions or the recruiting or advertising variations. So keep in mind there are different recruiting and advertising requirements depending on what kind of LMIA you are seeking to obtain. So 
most of the applications will probably be under a high wage or a low wage. And always, almost always, the job bank is required. And there are a whole bunch of nuances and difficulties with the interface of a job bank account, which is a separate federal government account that needs to be verified by the employer. And of course, all the forced choices that companies are wrangled into putting on that job bank account. And then there are other advertising methods. So when you have discrepancies between the job bank and your other advertising sources, or if you just need to put stuff that you could not shoehorn into the job bank in your other ads, carefully doing so and making sure that you're covering the requirements for this position sufficiently between all your advertising sources. Yeah, we see this a lot. Sometimes we'll have companies that, w that will have started their advertisements before they come to see us and they'll say, hey, can we use these ones? We've already done all of this. And then after discussions with them, they, you know, sometimes, you know, they decide to just go off and do it on their own. And then they come back and see us after things went south. But ultimately they'll have started a path and they've created ads previously. And then we say, well, you have to do the job bank and then everything is pretty regimented and standardized. So you, it's, you know, a series of drop down menus or selections you choose from. There's not a lot of free form responses or, or creativity within that process. And, um, and sometimes things like wages, you know, in the other ads, they may not have noticed that we've told them, oh, there was an update to the wage. And then one of their ads, just one, you folks out there, uh, is maybe a dollar less than the others and just happens to be below that prevailing wage rate. And it, it unravels everything else. So these little mm -hmm. tiny nuances. And like Alicia said, um, if you want to know what all those advertising requirements are and the ins and outs of that process, yeah, just go back and watch our previous or listen to the previous episode. I'm so used to doing videos these days, Alicia. Um, it's great to be back doing these podcasts. I love this. Yeah, and it's it's super fun to talk about this because I think it's important for employers to realize that this is a process that needs to be done very carefully. So when they're advertising, just like you said, Mark, sometimes things get updated or they change their ads throughout that advertising and recruiting period. And if they don't properly update all of their ads and make sure that they take screenshots of all of their updated ads and all of their unique ad ID numbers, that's going to be a problem. And then the other thing is making sure that they're tracking it and they're also tracking the recruitment. And so when we talk about recruitment, hopefully people realize that one of the things in the job bank is this job match process. And this is not super new, it's been around for a while, but I think maybe some employers just don't fully appreciate what job match involves. And it actually involves candidates getting a certain star ranking and that's matched up with their advertising requirements. And if a candidate is anything above two stars for a low wage, they have to actively go in and invite those people to apply. And if they're anything above a four star, they have to actively go in and invite those people to apply if it's a high wage LMIA. And the tricky thing in it is in practice that the employers don't necessarily know who it is that then subsequently applies for the job once they've sent that job match report. 
And so recruiting becomes a big piece of this puzzle and making sure that you are logging who's applying, trying to figure out if that person is a foreign national or a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, going through all the normal efforts that you'd normally do to verify whether they're qualified candidates. Do they have a driver's license if that was a requirement on the ad? Do they have the years of experience? Do they have the certificates or tickets that are required for the position? And actually keeping track of all these things and then figuring out whether you interview, whether you actually offer the position, because all of these things need to be backed up and provided as part of your LMIA. And if you do it incorrectly, then that's going to be a reason for refusal. Yeah. And ESDC is ruthless, you guys. The slightest little hiccup is going to get the application rejected. You know, I, I can't understand really what policy rationale they have for being so so strict in their requirements other than to deliberately prevent employers and to actively work against them in securing these approvals. And I understand the need to protect the Canadian workforce that, that makes perfect sense. But when, you know, when employers are going through all of these steps, they're complying with everything. And there's one simple little thing that is missing to then just return the application is incomplete is, um, it's pretty heartless. (laughs) And so that's the world we're living in. And and it is interesting, Mark, because I think these things also go through ebbs and flows. And so sometimes in the past, I have seen situations where ESDC gives the employer another chance to rectify things if they can prove that they've done this, that, or the other thing. But that is not the rule. That seems to be the exception. Exception. And it really depends. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough. Um, you know, I, I look at our recent situation with our large corporate client, uh, one of them that we just recently completed, and we talked about this in the past. And uh, the feeling, though, um, when it comes to dealing with ESDC these days is is that they are much more facilitative than they used to be. So when labor markets are really down and, and Canadians are unemployed, there is a different feel in a different climate that exists when you're filing these applications compared to now, which I've talked about in the past is very similar to the early days of our practice when things were booming and, you know, when things are starting to pick up, I was just, uh, I, when I, I went out for a little walk with Deanna here, finally I was able to get rid of the screen time. Um, I'm feeling it in my eyes. I've got some new bionic Steve Austin eyes, uh, some new lenses that were put in because <laughs> I was losing my sight. But um, I was out for a walk with Deanna and, and one of uh, one of my friends who has a company. Um, he worked for you know the sales and stuff like that for for years and was high up in a one of the um, you know the security companies. Anyway, so he's starting his own business, and we were talking about just how hard it is for him even to get door to door sales. You know to get kids to come join and, and, and work for him. And so he's now looking at the LMIA process and pretty much everyone is. And, uh, but our experience, our recent experience has definitely been the best experience that I've ever had working with Service Canada and securing LMIAs. And, you know, we were seeking quite a number of them. And when you're doing bulk requests for, for companies, um, you have to go through a whole, a whole bunch more hoops to, to really justify the need for such a large volume. But it's very promising and very hopeful and, and uh, something worth, yeah, something worth pursuing, although it's a lot of work. Yeah, and it is a lot of work. The, the one case where 
I did see ESDC want to be facilitative recently on a different file was on a caregiver situation. And those are a little bit different on LMIAs, right? Because then usually it's just individual family members, a couple that has a child applying for an LMIA for a caregiver. And normally those are different situations. And I think that's maybe why ESDC was more facilitative with the problems in the advertising and the, and the recruiting. But in general, I, I do see ESDC's point if on the recruiting side of things, the company is not doing a good job of documenting who they're interviewing, how they're screening candidates, what industry standard is in that area. Because if I see a spreadsheet from an employer and it just doesn't pass the logic check, right? If I see a candidate that on paper appears to be somebody who's qualified, I really grill the employer about why that person wasn't interviewed or why they weren't offered the position. And I think that's important to do as, as a lawyer as well, to make sure that companies are, they have justifiable reasons for who they're offering the positions to, if that person seems to be a Canadian citizen or permanent resident. Exactly. Well, is there any other last little pieces of uh, feedback on this main primary reason for refusal, I guess one thing I will throw out is remembering the distinction between high wage and low wage and the need to advertise to underrepresented groups. Um, and Alicia alluded to this at the beginning when we introduced this uh, top refusal number one, <clears throat> there is uh, an onus on the owner, you know, the, the company owner to demonstrate how long that ad has been running for. And if you're posting a sign in your local settlement organization or, you know, if there's some youth, um, <clears throat> you know, youth uh, hiring uh, business or, you know, whatever it might be in your community and you're posting it on a bulletin board, it's hard to track exactly when or how long you've had that out there. And uh, so you need to pay very close attention to it. Or even if you're posting on Kijiji or some other online system, sometimes it's not as easy to to really document when that ad first went in. So Make sure that you do pay attention to that when you're choosing where to advertise to because an, an inability to demonstrate that can definitely result in a refusal. They're not just going to take mm -hmm. your and word for it. Yeah, no, take a photo, have a timestamp, make sure that you're proving that. Um, the other thing that I would say, and I think we touched upon this in our episode 104, but be really careful about the fact that usually that job bank ad or even an, another ad on another platform is automatically populated and kind of pushed out to all the other advertising sites. That is not sufficient. I've had a lot of employers who just didn't know come back and say, well, I see the ad all over the place. Isn't that good enough? And it is not good enough. If you don't have a unique ad ID, it's not considered to be an alternate source of recruitment. And the other thing is, like you were saying, Mark, on an underrepresented group, they can't be the same underrepresented group. You need two different underrepresented groups that you're targeting. Yes. All right. So yes, there are no end to the problems that can arise when you're doing the advertising and recruitment component. And it's something that all of us who've been doing this for a long time, we key in on this right off the get-go. But there's another area which we're going to shift to, which is our reason, our refusal reason number two, which many people overlook. And there was a time, Alicia, where I did do a labor market impact assessment for a client and um, it was refused on this ground, which I was quite surprised because it was a franchise. They had everything in place, but they looked at it and determined it was deficient and refused the entire application based on this. So 
let's not leave the listeners in suspense anymore. What is our reason number two? Yeah, reason number two is business legitimacy. And we won't get to just kind of, you know, businesses that are a little bit fly by night or questionable quite yet. This is more proving that that business is fully operational, that it actually is legitimate, incorporated, that it has been filing Canadian tax returns, corporate tax returns, that it has really the balance sheet or the assets or the retained earnings to be able to justify hiring this number of positions at this wage or salary. And that's something where a lot of employers don't really realize it's going to be scrutinized. And in the case of my client, you know, we provided the tax documents, statements of income and earnings and things like that. And they determined based on their evaluation that the company didn't have enough money to support this position based on their evaluation. And it wasn't the first time that it happened to me. I had a company in Calgary that was a multi-million dollar company, but they had some lean years and their profit loss wasn't as good. And they were bringing in a new, ironically, a new executive. I can't remember if it was actually to fill the CEO position. And, you know, that individual was going to be making 150000 or something like that. <clears throat> and they pushed back. ESDC pushed back. And I politely said to them, look, so what you're saying is this company is trying to bring in this rock star to help salvage the company and um, save the 25 Canadians from losing their job. You're saying that that's not a good business decision and that they probably don't have enough money to pay him. Well, if that is the concern, given the company has been around for 10 years, um, then understand you basically are saying to the company, those 25 Canadians that are working, you know, they can find work elsewhere. It was approved, but those are some of the discussions that you, you know, that you have to have sometimes. And, uh, you know, the officers are, they're human and they've got their marching orders and they're, they're specifically taught to look for certain things. And sometimes you have to bring them a little bit back to realities and, and have those discussions. And this is another thing I'll point out, which is a tip, um, a free tip here, you guys. Really educate your employers. And if you are an employer, become knowledgeable, understand what you're doing, understand the advertising, understand what's really required so that when you have those discussions and invariably they almost always come, um, you can be there to defend your company and to push back. And sometimes it becomes a little bit of a, you know, a discussion and you have to advocate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I, I think one of the other key reasons for refusals in terms of business legitimacy is companies often don't realize that there are two different aspects to business legitimacy. So there are documents specifically that ESDC wants in order to prove that the business is providing a good or service. And there's listed documents that might satisfy that request. And then they also have a grouping of supporting documents and evidence to go to the ability to fulfill the terms of the job offer. And that's exactly what you were talking about, Mark, right? making sure that there's a logical argument put forward for how this company why this company is requesting the position and how they're going to be able to pay for it and how it fits into their business plan, their corporate structure and where they're moving forward as, as an organization. Yes. 
I'll share one other little insight. I got a an email from a good friend that I worked at when I was in Calgary. Well, he was a, he was a, a lawyer who worked in the firm that I started with in my career, and um, he has his own business uh, business law firm. And he showed me an email that he received from someone who wanted him to provide a letter confirming the <laughs> the, the the viability of the company. And there are becoming fewer and fewer people that are actually willing to do that. And, uh, you know, confirming that the employer has the ability to fulfill the terms of the job offer. And from a financial standpoint, it becomes really, really challenging. Um, because if you don't have the specific documents they're looking for, you can get a professional like an accountant or a lawyer to provide an attestation. And, uh, it's, it's ironic that now, um, most, you know, wise or <laughs> risk averse um, lawyers or, or CPAs are not willing to do that. And we've heard rumors that they've been counseled not to do that uh, because you're attesting to something that you don't really have the, you know, the ability to do. So my friend, um, he said, well, I'll just charge him $20,000. And I said, well, okay, you could do that. And I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that this organization, you know, or this individual that you're looking to work, you know, that has reached, approached you probably has the pockets to do it because they're probably shysters and are, you know, they're, they're not really above board to start with. But I said, you don't want to go to, he was just tongue in cheek. He was just joking. But, but ultimately it's, this is one of the requirements and it's, it's harder and harder to get this attestations from, uh, from, yeah, from lawyers and, 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 uh, you know, um, lawyers and accountants, sorry. And so we'll see how that plays out. And I guess sometimes if you're, you know, uh, if there's counsel in-house counsel that can actually do that, well, that works if you're a big company, but, uh, it is a, it is a component that people have to be aware of. Yeah. Right. The other, the other thing that mm. I usually ask employers right out of the gate is how long have you been in business? How long have you been in operation and how long have you been filing corporate taxes? Because the other problem with why LMIAs get refused for business legitimacy is simply because the company's not been operating long enough. And this is, this is something that's been the case for years and years and years. It is really, really difficult to try to get an LMIA if it's a fledgling business. Yeah, track record of employing Canadians in the past is what they're looking for. And, uh, yeah. you know, outright, there's an outright bar when you're seeking an LMIA, a permanent LMIA for the purposes of supporting someone's express entry application, which is a different discussion. But, you know, that's an, that's an outright bar from being able to go through it. And there have been times in the past when I've had a company that has needed to do this, and they are uh, more of a startup company, but you sure have to show, usually it's in the context of a, you know, an intercompany transfer or something like that, where they've got someone that they, you know, that they uh, haven't had employed, but really they're going to be launching the new company in Canada and you have to look at the LMIA. So yes, something to be aware of. All right. Well, Alicia, let's take just a little, little time for our sponsor. Um, Journey Business Plans has been kind enough to jump in and, and sponsor the podcast and, uh, they are a leading immigration business plan writing service provider here in Canada. They do work in the U.S. as well, but uh, they've had over 10 years here in our fine country and they've grown to become a very trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for all kinds of different work permits, ICTs, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed PMPs, and a whole bunch more. Their main competitive advantage is really reliability and responsiveness. Um, I personally have experienced uh, 
the customer service, which is phenomenal. But for those of you who don't yet know about Journey, just ask me or ask one of your colleagues about them because we pretty much, if you haven't heard of them, uh, I'd be surprised if you haven't, but they're pretty amazing. Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.journey.ca. That's J-O-O-R-N-E-Y.ca. And mention you listen to my podcast. And if you enter the code WholeThyJourney10, that's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10, that'll get you a 10% discount on a first business plan for new lawyers. So Journey, thanks so much for sponsoring this podcast. All right, Alicia, number three within our top four reasons for refusals. Let's hear it. Yeah, and you hinted at this before, Mark, but wage. Wage is one of those non-negotiable, extremely sticky, you will automatically instantly get refused if the employer is not willing to comply with all the wage requirements. And it's not just wage, but also the requirements of the job. So depending on what kind of employee you're looking for, what kind of position, how senior it is, and the job location, these are all things that could get the LMIA refused. But for sure, if you have not put in the proper wage on those initial advertisements, or if you realize that things have changed since you started advertising, so here's the thing. Make sure that you go and update. You've normally it has to run for four weeks continuously, unless you're looking at the egg program or one of the variations in advertising. But throughout that four-week period, sometimes those weight median wages fluctuate. And so, and here's a tip from me. One of my tips is as soon as you start that advertising and recruiting, make sure that you go and take a screenshot of exactly what is on for your location for that knock for that. Um, particular job and keep that date stamp. And literally I had a case where an employer had submitted their application. It had been months before ESDC actually talked to them about it. And lo and behold, the wage had changed during those months and they were about to refuse them. And they said, well, if you can show me that the wages were correct when you started, as long as you say that you will now pay the current wage, it'll be okay. And so they were in a panic. They (laughs) talked to me. I said, yep, I have a screenshot and all was well. So The moral of the story is make sure that you take a screenshot and make sure you go and update the wages if you notice that they've changed. And the other thing is, it's almost always possible to advertise a wage range, and that usually is going to be a much safer bet. And one other thing that I'll point out as well, um, some of you may be relatively new or didn't listen to the last episode, Alicia is referring to the job bank. And when you go there and you click on trend analysis at the top, you can then drop down to wages. And the wage that's listed for your location, you're going to choose the occupation. And then once you've selected the occupation, it's going to be broken down by geographic region. And it's the median. It's that middle wage that you need to be able to pay. So that's what you want to screenshot and keep track of and make sure there's a date stamp on it. So great tip, Alicia. Really, really great tip. And, and it's not just, you know, what the median wage is, but the median wage has to be the lowest end of your wage range. So you cannot have a wage range that goes below the median. So be super careful about that. As soon as you do that, you're getting refused. The other thing is there's a difference between advertising and actually what you put on your LMIA application. So the advertising has to be within the wage 
range, but you're committed. Once you su submit that LMIA, you're committed to a particular dollar and cents figure. And so if that has changed, then also the employer would need to pay the higher amount by the time that LMIA is actually being adjudicated or decided. One other little tip, it's a battle of tips between Alicia and I here now. One tip that I do want to share is that if you are saying that the person you're bringing in needs 10 years of experience, you're very likely not going to get by with that median wage. So it's entirely possible that uh, Service Canada, the officer, could come back and say, well, that median wage is for someone that has the minimum requirements to meet this position, but you're excluding Canadians because they don't have 10 years. Well, then you better be paying for that 10 years. And I've seen them do that the moment I indicate they need one year. Now, this is in a previous world and we're hoping that they're not kind, you know, as cruel, but if you want to increase your chances of success, make sure that you're, you know, don't just rely on that median wage. Um, pay attention to what the real requirements are. And, uh, you know, often if a, a company is offering a little bit more than that median wage, ESDC is going to cut them a little bit more slack because they know that they're not just trying to do the bare minimum to get this foreign worker in, but uh, the wages are, are something that would be attractive for Canadians. So, Yeah, and as a lawyer, one of the first things that I do with employers is talk to them about the wage, because sometimes employers are shocked that the median wage is as high as it is. So sometimes, depending on where they're operating, it's going to cause a whole bunch of backlash within their own company if they start advertising this position for more than what they're paying their current staff. And people will push back and say, well, why should I be paying foreign workers more for what I'm already getting for Canadians? And this is the entire point. <laughs> this is the whole reason why we have a labor market impact assessment, because it's supposed to be hard. And the government is providing disincentives. They're saying, find your Canadians first, and we're not going to let you employ a foreign national unless you're actually play, paying that foreign national the median overall for the entire industry, for this location, for the job that you're looking for. And if you're trying to secure an LMIA for more than one position, they're often going to come back to the employer and say, okay, well, what are you doing to train your existing Canadians to fill this role? Are there things that you should be doing to connect better with schools and to reach out and to create your talent right here at home versus seeking outside to, to recruit? So be aware of that as well. There's more onerous obligations when you're doing it for more than one individual compared to a single applicant. All right, let's hit our final last top four reasons for LMIA refusals. What is it, Alicia? Uh, and this is where I think it's really important as an immigration lawyer to only work with reputable employers and making sure that those employers are doing their due diligence, are properly educated and trained in terms of what this whole process involves, how it's so important in terms, and we can we'll talk more about compliance reviews in the back end of, of making sure that employers are doing this properly. But I've had consults over the years with various situations where that initial LMIA, the employer wanted to tailor it to a particular employee that they had in mind for the position. And this is an absolute no-go. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. So for example, if someone wanted to hire me, all they need to do is say, okay, I'm looking for a 50-year-old uh, 
washed up immigration lawyer who lives in Lethbridge, has four children and um, likes to fish in the high mountain streams and speaks Portuguese. So that sounds like a pretty good job. And, you know, the interesting thing, Alicia, and this is where we can always share our mistakes as well as our successes. And um, when I first started out, when I was at that national firm, there was a client that had this, I don't know what I would call him. He was like a personal assistant to the owner's wife of the company. And he did everything for her. I didn't ask how much stuff he really did for her. But anyways, he was, um, he was the butler. He was the cook. He was the chauffeur. He was the gardener. He was everything. And so when I first did my very first LMIA, I didn't understand the nuances of it. And it was back when they were kind. And so I put it in there, all the duties that he did. And, you know, and they, they came back and said, well, I don't think this is a genuine job. Like what, is he a helicopter pilot? Like they said, you need to choose one. And, um, you know, and that was, that was a challenge. So I, I learned very quickly that no, you know, you need to, you need to narrow it down. And sometimes people struggle when the person they want to come and work for them, especially I see this in agriculture, they have multiple jobs, they do multiple things. And the smaller the business, the more likely it is that they're going to need to do things. And, you know, we, um, we're virtual now with our firm, but when I had my office, uh, actual physical office here in Lethbridge, I shoveled the snow in the morning. I took the garbage out. I did everything, but I was still a lawyer, but you have to be careful when you're defining the role that it doesn't split across more than one. So yes, you want to, you know, avoid tailoring it to that individual because, the ESDC officer will say, well, this is not a genuine position because only this person can qualify for it. And you haven't legitimately given Canadians an opportunity, especially we see that a lot with mm-hmm. foreign language requirements. They need to be able to speak Spanish mm-hmm. because it has an international role and, you know, they're doing business development in South America. So they need to be able to speak Spanish. Uh-uh, that won't fly. Yeah, and there are actual refusal reasons that are given on the website, and one of them is having a language requirement other than English or French, unless it's a bona fide requirement of the job. And really, the only ones that I've ever seen being found to be bona fide are if, are if you're working as a translator. Translator. And mm-hmm. yeah, other than that, English or French. And if you put anything other than English or French as a requirement, that's going to be a reason for refusal. So making sure that that job is not tailored to the current employee. And a variation on this one is making sure that you advertise and recruit for a position that is tailored for a family member. And so as soon as I see situations like that, alarm bells start ringing in my head. We see that a lot. And anytime they feel something is not arm's length, there's going to be a different standard. And can you get an LMIA for a family member? Well, yes, you can. But understand that the the level of detail and perfection within your application needs to be much higher even than when you're bringing someone in that is not um, not related. So mm-hmm. good insight. Yep. All right. So there's our top fours. Uh, let's do a quick little recap if you're kind of drifted off or you're you know fell asleep at in this traffic jam trying to get out of toronto to your nice little cottage and you're like well wait a minute what was that number three well (laughs) well, (laughs) 
So refusal number one is problems with your advertising and recruitment efforts. Number two is business legitimacy um, in all of its forms. Number three is wages, problems with those. And number four is trying to tailor your application specifically to the employee to the exclusion of anyone else that could possibly qualify. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for for joining me today. And um, both Alicia and I, we are proud members of Holy Immigration Law and the Business Immigration Team. And we would be happy to help or assist you with anything related to your business immigration cross-border LMIA's international mobility program, which we will continue on with, uh, you know, with future episodes targeted to that particular region. But our next episode is all about the approval. We talked about the refusal today, but now you've gotten approval. Congratulations. Woohoo. Now (laughs) let's talk about those LMIA based work permit processes. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks Alicia. We'll see you in the next episode. This episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast is sponsored by the Canadian Immigration Institute, one of the best sources of video content on Canadian immigration to help you navigate your way through the Canadian immigration process. Head on over to the YouTube channel where there's tons of video content and you can join Mark, yes, myself, in a number of live video streams, Q&As, all designed to help you navigate your way through this crazy Canadian immigration process. When you're done there, like and subscribe and then head on over to the CanadianImmigrationInstitute.com where you can find all those awesome DIY courses that I've been talking about. Thank you, Canadian Immigration Institute. You are the sponsor of this amazing little podcast. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Juice.
Canadian immigration policy.